Welcome to the Mormon Faircast. I'm Ned Skarsbrick and one of the many volunteers of Fair Mormon who help those with faith issues. These podcasts will be a series of nine episodes done by Karen Trifoletti from the I Believe podcast. Each episode deals with issues regarding how the Bible is a reliable source of truth. These podcasts are used by permission of Karen Trifoletti and the I Believe podcast group. And now, the authenticity of the Bible. Intended for all truth seekers, from agnostic and religiously unaffiliated to those intellectually struggling, or friends of other faiths seeking to know more about life's meaning, Christianity, or Christ's church. Your host is Karen Trifoletti, a self-identified, perfectly imperfect, but graced follower of Jesus Christ. For more podcasts or information, please visit our website at iBelievePodcast.com or subscribe on iTunes. Here's Karen. Welcome once again to I Believe Podcast, Expressions of Faith. We are continuing our series of casts about the authenticity of the Bible. We'd like again to welcome G.M. Johnson with us today. Welcome, Dave. Good to be back with you. In today's society, there are so many attacks against the person of Jesus Christ as well as the Bible. So today, we're going to look at various methods that are used by biblical scholars and critical historians to authenticate things as historical. Um, so one thing that those with faith in the Bible are confronted with often, Dave, is the insinuation that the entire text of the Bible is some made-up legend developed over time. Uh, to our listeners, today we're really going to give you some tools and examples of things that show and illustrate that the events described in the Bible actually took place. I know there are a number of different criteria that are used to consider something viable, even historically, and we touched a little bit on this in the overview cast, but we'll go into more detail here. So Dave, let's start off with the need for multiple attestation. This is something that helps solidify in a, a historical account. So it it's true that for a lot of things, there's no witnesses, or maybe you have one uh, witness to a given thing, but historians obviously want to have uh, multiple sources for an event, and the more sources we have, the more certain we can become that that event was historical, and we also want different kinds of sources, and so it's important that we have multiple sources that even give us independent detail from those sources. Perfect. We touched on the concept of having early testimony for Christian beliefs in the context of the core biblical discussion. Um, I think with the attacks that we sometimes see in the popular culture, as well as the media, it would probably be good to address that head on. Um, It seems logical to me that if we could establish that Christian beliefs happened early on and were not due to this kind of legendary development over time, that that would be key. Could we walk through the example you referred to in a previous cast about Paul? We, we have letters um, from Paul which predate the Gospels. And so scholars have identified also several places in there where we have creedal material that's very, very early. And so even atheist and agnostic scholars of the New Testament date the material uh, in there within two to three years after the resurrection. And I'm not talking about the letters of Paul. I'm talking about this early creedal material that Paul quotes in his letters. And so it's been one of the huge stumbling blocks uh, for a lot of people that think the resurrection might have been a legendary development. It's way too early for any kind of legendary development to have developed. I think many people would find it amazing that we have information that scholars, even atheists and agnostic ones, date that early and close to the time of the crucifixion. 
I would like it if you'd walk our listeners through just step-by-step the reasons we know that it can go back so early. Let's go through this passage in detail that you're referring to and maybe give our listeners the details on why scholarship is so certain about this being one of the earliest teachings that went so far back in the early church. But before we we walk through that, can I just ask you to clear up one thing? Um, You mentioned that even atheists and agnostic scholars agree this material is early. I think lots of people would assume that if somebody's an atheist, they don't believe a word of the Bible or anything contained in it at all. Would you agree that that's a misperception that's out there? Absolutely. Um, There's obviously theological things in the Bible or miracles or things like that that an atheist or or a skeptic uh, may not accept. But there are uh, certainly places in the Bible and the New Testament that are not disputed in terms of their authorship. So, for instance, we have seven letters from Paul. We have Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, First uh, Thessalonians, and Philemon. So if we take just those seven, a lot of people are surprised that, that an atheist uh, scholar will look at those and he will uh, count different things in there as historical from there. And so our first example, uh, I'd like us to go through uh, some of this material. It's in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. If you want to go ahead and and read that, we can walk through it. Sure, I have that, Dave. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all of the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. A couple things in there that people can tell. It's very, very early. Number one, uh, we see the term Cephas, which is the Aramaic uh, name for, for Peter. We also notice how Paul says, what I received. This is a key phrase for scholars because the underlying Greek, it's a technical term that shows that he's referring to uh, kerygma, uh, basically an early oral formulation or creed that he learned, that he gave to them. And so back in antiquity, what they would do, they had a lot of people that were illiterate, and they would often uh, memorize sayings as an oral uh, formulation. And this was done so that people would memorize those teachings and they wouldn't be lost. And you can think of this if you're at home, uh, you turn on the radio and you hear a song that you haven't heard in 10 years, right. and you know what those next words are going to be, because uh, that is a good way for the mind uh, to learn. And so that was the way they memorized this tradition. And um, he also says, I passed on to you. And this is, again, another one of those key terms in the underlying Greek that they can tell. He's relaying uh, this, uh, reciting this oral formulation. And so he's referring uh, to the teaching them at, at Corinth, this creed that he had learned from the apostles. And what's so powerful about this, when you think about that passage in particular, is that you have the core of the gospel right there in that formulation, that that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. So then he gives us a list of appearances, including both groups and individuals, right, Dave? Right. I like when he, he talks about the 500 people who had seen Jesus. He says, most of whom are still living. What he's really saying is you can go talk to him. Mm -hmm. He's basically kind of throwing down the gauntlet saying, go ask him yourself. They're still alive. Perfect. So let's walk through the timeline which illuminates for us the sequence of the apostles' words and then validates Paul's reality, really. Yeah. Most scholars uh, think that Paul wrote this letter in around uh, 55. If you think about the passage, he said he passed on this material. So he's talking about when he was there 
uh, with them. He, he told them these teachings, right? And so that means that we, we have him writing the letter in 55. Then there was a trip uh, beforehand where he relayed this information to them. And then he talks about what I received. That means we can, you know, go back two steps. So we have the letter in 55. Right. Uh, he was there. He gave it to him. That was earlier than that. And then when he learned it or he received it. And a lot of people think that this goes way back to when uh, the Apostle Paul met with Peter for 15 days. In the first couple of chapters of Galatians, it talks about that. And so this puts us from two to five years after the crucifixion. So just to recap for everybody, he's writing the letter in 55, uh, talking about when, when he was there and he told them this. So that means he told them something before then. And then before that, he learned this oral formulation. And so this means that uh, it goes back two to five years when he learned it, and they had it in circulation before that. And then you have the beliefs that drove that formulation going pretty much right back to the cross itself. So it's really hard for scholars, and they will seed that point, the ones who are or versed and trained in the New Testament, that this belief of, of the risen Christ was not an invention. In fact, it was in the very outset of the church. Makes it very difficult to dismiss Paul, like you said. And, and yeah. it's pretty amazing to think about because we have a person who's realized to be a historical person, even by atheist scholars, as we mentioned. And in one of his letters, we can trace back with confidence where he actually gets his early material. And I, it just shows that the beliefs of Christianity, again, go right back from the start and were not thought up decades or centuries later, alluding to what we said at the beginning of the cast. That's right. This is one of those examples of creedal material that is sometimes embedded in the New Testament, and scholars can recognize this. And so this shows we have early attestation that is contemporary with Jesus. And it also is an interesting point that Paul never would have written something to a church which he knew would be disproven. And so the fact that he refers to those other people still being alive uh, is big in a historian's eyes. So this, again, is that principle of early witness. It shows uh, that it was not legendary invention or extrapolation from there. Clear. Thank you. I know that often historians will talk about disinterested testimony. Uh, Can you summarize that? This is when somebody says something that's uh, maybe off the cuff or just in passing. And so we all have bias. And so historians look at accounts from who, from the vantage of, hey, who wrote this? And if you're somebody who's a huge supporter of, of Christianity, like, say, Justin Martyr or something like that, they know he's trying to defend the faith. And if they, they look at someone like Celsus or the Talmud, they know these people did not like Jesus. And so th- those are people on both sides. But what they really like is is testimony as well. Um, that's totally disinterested. That that's uh, just off the cuff. And sometimes you're, you know, you're reading the scriptures. Something that you would never think twice about. You read right over it to a historian is a huge clue. And one of these that's very interesting is in Galatians, uh, Bart Ehrman, who wrote a book about did Jesus exist and basically showed evidence that he clearly did exist. One of the huge things that he talks about is in Galatians where it says that that Paul met Jesus' brother James. Mm. And most people might just read right Mm. by that and not Mm. think it was a big deal. But some of those subtle things, just off-the-cuff comments, are very big to a historian. Very revelatory, those details. 
Um, when I think back to our cast, too, on extra-biblical evidence for Jesus, it seems like it falls into this category. I mean, when we talked about Tacitus, for example, he was just reporting matter-of-fact things about Jesus, right? So That's right. And some of the passages like Suetonius, you think about that, they're, they're more powerful that they're subtle. It would feel totally different uh, if there was a devout Christian that was bending over backwards to try to convince you exactly. uh, of something or, you know, set out or even, you know, on the other side, trying to discredit something. And so disinterested testimony is, it kind of removes that fog of bias that we see. That's why historians like that in addition to the other witnesses. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Um, I know in the earlier cast too, we had mentioned the criterion of dissimilarity. So for our audience, this is basically the notion that something's thought to be authentic if it goes or tends to go against the grain or the cultural tapestry of the time. Now, there are lots of things in this category that ring true about Jesus. Um, he clearly presented himself as a challenge to the status quo, to say the least, right? And that's pretty well known. Um, so things that are thought to be dissimilar from traditional Judaism at the time are thought to be authentic, even by secular scholars, when these criteria that, that Dave's talking about and that we're talking about are applied, would you say, Dave? That's right. I mean, Jesus, if you think about how he presented himself, a lot of people debate different things, but everybody realizes that he clearly showed he was not like the other rabbis at the time. The other rabbis uh, always were taught to teach in the name of so-and-so. In the name of so-and-so, I give you this teaching. And, and he would come along and, you know, not in the name of so-and-so, but I tell you. And, and he would challenge the law and clarify the law, even overrule in, in some ways the law. And one of the things that we see where he was dissimilar to the time was with regard to some of the discussions around the Sabbath and, and some of the traditions that the Pharisees had put into place. And so if you think about it for a minute, and this, again, is we, we bring up Bart Ehrman a lot because he, he's kind of a lightning mm-hmm. rod for controversy. But he points out you would never invent a Messiah figure in that culture that would be hung up on a tree and crucified. The Jews thought the Messiah was going to be a conquering Messiah, not a sacrificial one. And so you, you couldn't get more dissimilar than that. It totally went against the understanding that most of the Jews had at that time. And again, it, it speaks to the authenticity of what was going on. Those are great examples. Let's talk for a minute about the principle of embarrassment. This really is something that, that again, might be unknown uh, to some of our listeners as a historical point of evaluation. Usually as a people of faith, we're not used to looking at the scriptures this way. It's, it's almost so funny sometimes when you learn to approach the text this way, you know, using some of the tools that critical historians <laughs> use, because you see that there's just no way in the world you'd make up some of the things, like you just pointed out, that are in the New Testament, because... They don't always paint Jesus or the apostles, in fact, in the best light. And they really are, they really are in that sense of the word, embarrassing. Um, <laughs> you think about it. I mean, remember the question I asked uh, in the opening cast there. Is human nature to, to lie? People, probably everybody's lied at some point in their life, a little white lie or whatever, to make yourself look better. But it's just human nature. You would never tell a lie to make yourself look worse. And so, you know, you look at some of these embarrassing things, the apostles, they don't come off that bright in the New Testament sometimes, you know, they don't get over and over again. They do not understand what Jesus is, mm-hmm. is telling them. And, and, you know, Jesus, it's his great hour of need. He really needs them. And they fall asleep on him, not once, but twice. Uh, you know, it's Jesus' family. It's, it's not his family or his apostles that go to give him a proper burial. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Joseph of Arimathea. A member of the Sanhedrin. This is, this is the council that, that sentenced Jesus 
to die. And so the fact that Joseph of Arimathea is attested by all four Gospels, you would never uh, make up something involving a prominent member of society from the opposing viewpoint Mm -hmm. that they could have just said, no, we didn't, and totally refuted that. Remember, witnesses... uh, were alive at the time. Even for, even a liberal dating of the Gospels, we, we know that there were witnesses that were alive. You would never uh, create something em- embarrassing like that to your cause. You look at uh, things like Jesus um, referring to Peter as saying, Satan, get behind me, Satan, or mm-hmm. things like that. You, you would never make up something with those kinds of details if you were creating this to try to get followers. You just wouldn't make those kinds of things up. They're too embarrassing. Exactly. I hope this is really helping our listeners. This is These are so compelling uh, examples. And then we also, Paul rebuking Peter is another example of what you're speaking about for being wrong about a theological issue. I mean, that's not very comfortable either to have that, you know, <laughs> right. in print for posterity. Um, it's also true when you sit back, I think, and think about it that most of the epistles are about problem solving, right? Problems being resolved. And if you were actually thinking about it, uh, and, and thinking that you're trying to create a new religion and trying to get people to follow this religion, you wouldn't want problems necessarily to be aired in the open like that. You just you just wouldn't. They're not. It's just not comfortable. It's also you know quote embarrassing that Peter den- denies Jesus three times. I mean, again, that's you would never invent a scenario where your main apostle did something like that. I would also have to say, Dave, that when you look at the scriptures, the male disciples run away, and the women are the brave ones. <laughs> That's right. And I don't know of any guy out there, any dude, that would write a gospel and have the men be total you know, quivering cowards and run away, and, and the women are the ones that stand by Jesus. And, and you also wouldn't have the women, if you were to create something like this, you would never have them be the witnesses uh, of the resurrection in that culture because you wouldn't have got any mileage out of it. uh, And so surely if you were creating something like this, you would have male witnesses be the first witnesses. It's even more incredible that if you think about this principle of embarrassment that uh, the disciples are doubters when they hear about him, not only when hearing about him rise, but they're doubtful some of them when they see him. you know, Jesus is considered to be out of his mind by his own family. They, they come to seize him and take him. Uh, you know, you don't hear a lot about these kind of verses in church, but, but it, it's that principle of embarrassment. You wouldn't make that up. Um, he's deserted by his own followers. Um, you know, if you were making up a Messiah figure, you'd never put that in there, that he was not believed by his own brothers uh, or the people that are listening to this. It's just important to think that these are techniques that historians use when they approach a text critically to see if it's you know looks like it's something that's made up and it's just not human nature you you don't make things up that are embarrassing like that and the reason that they have these things in there is because it was sacred tradition to get it right well, that makes, that's great. Thank you for highlighting those examples. It's also embarrassing, quote-unquote, if you think that Jesus is thought by some to be a deceiver. Um, he, you know, he even gets Jewish believers so upset to the point that they want to stone him, as we, we know. Uh, you, you mentioned that he's called a madman, but he's also called a drunkard and a demon and demon-possessed. Again, these aren't very favorable attributes um, of some to describe him. Um, I just want to reiterate then and underscore what you said for our listeners, that the, the New Testament can hold up to literary scrutiny like this to show that human nature just wouldn't allow people who are trying to invent a religion or create a following to put these kinds of things in the Gospels. And with all the attacks on the Bible, it's important for, for us, for people to arm themselves with this kind of knowledge and understanding in order to defend their faith. 
Yeah, and I think if, if you're out there thinking about some of these things, sometimes people can get intimidated or uh, they get concerned or feel cornered, like they have to be able to answer every question that some doubter comes to them with. And if you read mythological accounts, and, and we'll go through uh, you know, some other a- accounts where it is clearly legend and, and mythology so you can see the contrast, but you don't have your heroes portrayed like this, where where you could maybe see them in a, in a bad light. And so this is what leads scholars to think that, that these accounts are, are genuine. And we'll look at some of that difference in future casts so you can see when we do the Gospels what the difference is between reporting of history versus something that's been embellished. Perfect. Um, I know we've talked a lot about the Apostle Paul in these casts. This leads us again to the concept of enemy attestation. Um, he previously started out as an enemy to Christianity and then became this, this great missionary. Do you want to touch on this concept of enemy attestation conceptually, Dave? Yeah, basically, conceptually, it's when somebody has zero reason to say something in your favor. Uh, they have all the reason in the world to say things against you. Enemies don't just dish out compliments like that when they're you're, mm-hmm. you're clear on the other side of the fence. And so if you're at home, I want you to think of this example. We're not going to get into politics here, but I just want you to think of somebody on the extreme right or the extreme left. Just think of a person in your mind, doesn't matter which side, totally committed to their position, uh, very well known, very prominent, and just overnight does a 180 and totally comes to the other side. Um, That's really hard to imagine. And with Paul, here you had a guy, he was consenting to to the Christian's deaths. He had zero reason to do a 180 uh, to say that. And matter of fact, he had every reason not to say it. The only thing he had to gain by saying this was his own torture and, and death. And so enemy attestation is a real big deal for historians. Um, you know, somebody's saying something when they don't have any motivation to do it. It's, it demands an explanation. And that's why the scholars are always so intrigued by Paul. I think it's important that each of us learns to approach the scriptures this way and to become conversant of, of some of the ways that uh, things that support scripture in, in this way. The kinds of things we've talked about, early testimony, eyewitness testimony, disinterested testimony, embarrassing testimony. All of that. And so I hope it's been helpful for our audience that you've been with us today and we've discussed these kinds of things. Um, Dave, would you like to say anything else about these concepts as we wind up the cast in closing? Yeah, as as we've gone through this cast, uh, we've kind of used some of these literary uh, techniques that people use, a historian, when they look at a document critically like this. Um, They can come at the New Testament uh, without the, you know, presupposition that it's the inspired word of God and look at it critically like this. And if we, even if we look at it in that way, uh, with Jesus, we have multiple witnesses, early witnesses, eyewitness witnesses. We have disinterested testimony, embarrassing testimony, enemy testimony. Uh, and so the Gospels in the New Testament show us that we have very good reasons to put our faith there. They, they pass these tests uh, of critical analysis that we can put on the text. And, and I just like to ask people, as I said before, if you're on the fence or trying to believe, just be open-minded and, and consistent. If you treat uh, the New Testament fairly and, and just give it a fair shake as you're seeking, I, I think it comes out very well. Thank you so much, Dave, again for joining us on the I Believe podcast. And listeners, let us know if you have any comments or questions for Dave or myself. You know where to find us at ibeliefpodcast.com, Facebook, Google+, or YouTube pages. God bless you. Look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening to I Believe, Expressions of Faith, with host Karen Trifoletti. 
for the video of this podcast, visit our website at ibelievepodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ibelievepodcast. Follow us on Twitter or give us a call at 1-85-KNOW-GOD-1 with your sincere questions. Karen would love to hear from you. If you like this podcast, you can help support it by subscribing to it in iTunes or writing a review. Post a link on your blog or Facebook page. As always, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast may not represent those of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or that of Fair Mormon. Thanks for listening.